Sound Design. The other part of it is I really do believe that a whole generation of sound engineers learn the wrong way. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the author of 23 books on recording and music, including Music 4.0, A Survival Guide for Making Music in the Internet Age, and Deconstructed Hits, Uncover the Stories and Techniques Behind Iconic Songs. Bobby Osinski, thanks for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thanks for having me, Nathan. So, Bobby, the first thing I want to know from you is how did you get your first job in audio? I don't know that I ever had a first job in that I've always been doing it. for As long as I can remember, way back when my first band started, I was in charge of the PA, and that was my... I guess my first audio job, and ever since then, I've been the guy that's been in the studio, working on the PA, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of the same, you know, when I talk to other engineers and producers, it seems like everybody kind of starts that way for some reason. It's uh, a characteristic of the breed, I think, where, you know, we start through our never-ending interest in what happens with the electronics as they go through these wires that we have. So it sounds like maybe your transition was so smooth that there was never an abrupt moment where it was like, okay, now this is a job, or okay, now I'm making money with this. No, never, because I was making money as a player when I was 14 years old. I was playing four nights a week in clubs, and this was back in the days and there's plenty of clubs, so you know it wasn't a big deal because everybody was doing it, but I was making a pretty good living all through high school, all through college, and, and then afterwards. So as a musician, I was, I was always making money. I, it was always my job. My band had a couple of record deals, and through that, I got more and more interested in the studio, even though I had my own tape machines, my own four tracks and everything. But uh, that kind of led to me working more in the studio and then eventually full-time in the studio, mostly because I just didn't want to tour anymore. Mm, okay. You know, and, and that's a common characteristic as well, where you find a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of players will eventually say, ah, this isn't quite the way I remember it, (laughs) you know, not quite as much fun or they want to stay home with their families or closer to their families or whatever the case. And, uh, for me, I actually had a really bad experience with an artist who shall remain nameless and who had a, um, substance abuse problem. And it became my last tour because it was no fun whatsoever. And I kind of decided, okay, I've been spending a lot of time in the studio and I'm going to spend all of my time in the studio. And that's, that's, you know, really kicked me into that, that mode. But I was pretty well along by that time in my career. I was, you know, 40 years old or so. Not the best way to end, but um, maybe it was time for your transition anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was 
work, like I say, I was working more and more in the studio, mostly as a producer, but, you know, I was an engineer as well. And uh, it wasn't I was taking engineering only jobs. Usually, if I was if I was producing, I was engineering as well. At least some of it. Um, I don't like to do basics as a producer slash engineer. I'd rather have another engineer so I can just concentrate on the music. But sometimes the budget doesn't allow that, so I would engineer as well. And then, of course, ba uh, when it comes to overdubs. It's infinitely easier easier if you do it yourself. You know, I, I do everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I was used to doing that for a long, long time. So, Bobby, I want to jump into talking about live sound a little bit, which I know is not your main focus on your site or your books, but you do cover it. And I was intrigued by one of the articles that you wrote. Uh, so you recently wrote this article called Why Do Concerts Sound So Bad, in which you write... Uh, the fact of the matter is that the majority of concerts really sound bad these days. And you say that the biggest reason for this is that the vocal cannot be heard or understood. So is the solution as simple as turning up the vocal or is there something more complex going on? What are some of the real improvements we can make for better intelligibility and more enjoyable concert experience? Well, you're younger than I am, so I don't know if, if you have the same reference point of what sounds good and what doesn't. All I can say is, when I was growing up in the audio business, sound systems were so much better and so much worse at the same time. They were so much better in that they sounded way, way better. They were mostly horn-loaded systems as compared to our, the line arrays that we have now. And horn-loaded systems, especially when it comes to intelligibility, they were just so much better. So that was a big thing. And, of course, the bad part was the fact that the setup time took forever. And there was just no easy way to do it. And to either transport it, transport the gear, and then the setup. So, as a result, we've come to the all-in-one line array boxes that every sound system uh, designer and every sound system owner uses these days. They're easier to truck, they're cheaper, they're faster to set up. I understand all that. They just don't sound as good. So... I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is I really do believe that a whole generation of sound engineers learn the wrong way. So what I mean by that is they tend to concentrate way too much on the drums, I think, especially the kick drum, and far too little on the most important and the softest thing on stage, which is the vocals. So... When I was growing up in the business, the way it worked was you concentrated on the vocal first because that needed the most help. It was sound reinforcement. And, you know, a lot of things weren't even mic'd in the early days. A lot of instruments and everything that, that came along later it was the vocals that we we're trying to get. And now, like I say, it's a completely different philosophy, much for the worse, and I'm not saying there's not really great engineers out there that can pull this off, and, and there are some that do. But by and large, I think that you know most live sound engineers concentrate on the wrong thing. They just concentrate on getting that great drum sound, and, mm. and it sounds like you know a kick drum with the band <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> you know, really bums me out, especially when you spend a lot of money to go see a concert, listen to a concert, and it just isn't up to your expectations. 
what are some ways that we could make the mix or make the final product more vocal centric? We could uh, focus or spend more time on the vocal during the sound check. We could spend more time listening to reference material that is vocal centric or, or has a balanced mix. Um, I mean, it, it could be that simple. Yeah, I'm, I mean, a lot of it is where you begin your mix from. In the studio, we find that when we're doing a mix, I can't say the majority of the time, but many, many, many mixers start from the, from the drums and especially from the kick drum. There are some that start from the vocal and some that start from other places. When it comes to live sound, I think it's imper- it's it's... Uh, it's something that you have to start from. You have to start using the the vocal as the center point on where to start from and build everything around that because, like I say, that has to be the loudest thing in the mix. It needs the most support. So when you start from other elements, you find that it's just not as as pleasing. You know, one of the changes that I can think of, compared to the studio at least, is I'm imagining in a studio environment you often have the client sitting behind you and maybe that client is the vocalist or maybe they're not, but they're going to be telling you if something is off, if the mix is not right. But in a live situation, you know, the artist is on stage, so maybe you have the manager uh, standing next to you or someone giving you input. But a, a lot of times, uh, maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just one person. So maybe that's another difference. Well, most of the time, the live engineer is getting input. And the input is coming from lots of different places. And I've sat there and I've watched myself where you get managers, and stave, stage managers, and the boyfriend of the artist and <laughs> you know all sorts of people come and they make comments and in some cases you can ignore them just like in the studio in other cases you can't but and you have members of the audience too <laughs> it's funny i was i have a very good friend uh, dennis moody who's a great studio engineer and he's also a great live sound engineer very there's very few of these people that can do both but dennis is one of them and Dennis does everything from big, big, big sheds with some big artists, and we're talking twenty thousand, you know, plus, to you know, clubs. But I can remember he asked me to go to the Honda Center in Anaheim to see one of one of the artists that he was mixing, and I was sitting next to him at the console. So he turns to me about four songs up, and he says, "Can you go in the upper deck?" And hear if you can hear the vocal up there, because I'm not sure if I have the level up enough on those speakers. Mm-hmm. So as I'm walking through the audience, people are stopping me and are saying, I can't hear this. And why does this sound like this? And, and it hurts my ears. I have nothing to do with it, but because they saw me sitting you know, at the soundboard, they thought that, uh, you know, I was a contributor, and sure. therefore they could tell me everything, and uh, and I would help them, and which I didn't. But I, I mean, I did go back, and I I told my friend all of the uh, the feedback I was getting, and uh, some of and, and you know again, a conscientious engineer will take all that in, and they'll say, oh, okay, well, I'm trying to make everybody happy, so let me do what I can, and then you'll have some people that 
are ego-driven that will just say, eh, I know best. There's this book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell that I like a lot. Yeah. He talks about how power plant meltdowns and plane crashes are not caused by a single mistake, but by a series of small local failures that combine into a system-wide failure. So I found myself thinking about this as I read through uh, the comments on this post that you wrote and the conversation that we're having now. And I noticed people kind of passing the blame to the system tech or to the artist or to the venue, etc. And I was thinking if concerts are like power plants and there's a large team of talented people required to keep them running, then how can we improve as a team to make every concert sound amazing? So maybe in the mix position, I should be asking for more input for, from the team or making conversations about this more common. The system techs just make sure that the system is up and working well. And they're at the beck and call of the engineer. All of the engineers I know of, when it comes down to it, they have final say in everything. So they can say, I need two more boxes up in front. I need this, I need that. And the system techs will get it for them. Or they'll just say, I don't like the way this sounds. How do you have the, the EQ set? And we'll go and reset the EQs himself. Or we'll say, wait a second, the subs are too hot. Turn them down 6 dB or whatever the case. So the system tech really doesn't have a, a big say unless they screw up. You know, a venue, of course, really has a big effect on what the sound system is like, because if you have a reflective venue, it's really hard for anybody to get over that. But we're just talking about, you know, good venues when you're in or, or outside. You know, it should sound good outside if it's not really windy. Hmm. And yet I've been to a lot of outdoor concerts where you go, ah, why does it sound so bad? I can't understand this. Where I can remember distinctly several concerts in my younger years, going to several concerts, where it sounded as clear as a bell. It sounded as good as any recording you've ever heard. And I can't say the same for anything I've heard in quite a long time. Bobby, we all know that Pro Audio is built on personal referral. A lot of it feels like luck and happenstance. So are there any methods we could be using for building relationships and generating personal referral on a regular basis to kind of feel more in control of our future and getting more of the work that we really want? Well, I think when it's all said and done, it all comes down to attitude and perseverance. Mm. And not so much on talent because... You can have a lot of talent, and if you're no fun to be around, you're not going to work. Okay. <laughs> or you'll work once, and you won't work after that. And it's always the case that the nicest person, the most fun person to be around, is the one that gets the gig, always. Or, or keeps the gig, let's put it like that. When you're going out on the road, for instance, and there are two people up for the gig, and they're roughly the same incompetence, the one with the great attitude is going to win hands down every single time. And it's like that for every gig. People just like to work with people that are fun to be around, that you know, that are, are helpful. And that's the big thing. Just have a great attitude. And the second thing is, you know, it's the old tortoise versus the hare thing. Things don't happen overnight in most businesses. You know, you have the 10-year overnight success. 
the person that has the most perseverance to hang in there is the one you're going to find, you know, in the long run is going to really have a career mm -hmm. and eventually will get to the point where they're doing, you know, well. They're either making a living or they're doing much better than that. And that combination, I think, is unbeatable. But I'll say that that's, that has nothing to do with the music business as much as it has to do with any business, really. Uh, you know, except for if you're in a union gig where, you know, you're in there for life, that's kind of different. But for the most part, people just like to work with other people that are fun to be around and at least are competent. Sure. So I, I think that's the best thing. It's You have to have a great attitude and you have to have some perseverance. And, and, and the other thing, the third thing, I hear these stories over and over and over. You'll ask someone what their big break is and they'll say, you know, Someone called me, and it was a throwaway gig. I didn't even know who, who the artist was. They weren't paying me much money, but I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll do it anyway. I'm not doing anything else. And it turned out to be the best move in their career <laughs> and a linchpin in their career. And I've heard the story over and over and over. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I was just talking to Ken Calais. Ken was a producer engineer for the big Fleetwood Mac albums in the 70s, Rumors and Tusk and Mirage. I said, so how did you get with Fleetwood? And he said, you know, they asked me to mix a live radio show. He said, I didn't even know who they were. And I didn't much care. We just hit it off. We had so much fun. And they went to remix some of their songs. And they just decided to like me better. And they came back. Then I have an, another friend who does like uh, voiceovers and ADR work. And he said he got a call from a guy, uh, an Australian, but he was here in America. And he was doing work, voiceover work, for an Australian TV station. And the guy just needed like 15 minutes to do a voiceover. It was hardly anything. There was hardly any money in it. And, and, you know, he gave him, I don't know what it was, like 50 bucks or something. And my friend said, oh, well, yeah, why not? You know, let's do it. It's not, not a big problem for me, and who knows. And it became his biggest client ever. And now he does the majority of that kind of work for all all of Australian TV and movie studios. So it just goes to show you sometimes those gigs that don't seem like much, that are very easy to turn down, they're the pivotal the pivot points in your career. So, you know, again, it goes to show you, don't ever turn anything down, no matter how small, because you just never know. So, Bob, you said attitude and perseverance, and I know this may sound a little bit silly, but... Is there any way that I could uh, improve my attitude so that people like working with me? I mean, should I try to be more funny or more nice? I obviously think I'm the nicest, funniest person in the world in my own head, but who knows what other people think of me? I mean, is that ridiculous to try and um, maybe improve those relationships or improve my people skills? Have you met some other engineers or just people in general who are really good at this? And maybe what are some of the things they did that made their clients say, oh, I really like working with Bobby. He's such a nice guy. I mean, the people I know that are funny are naturally funny and they're not trying. So that's part of it. Like, I could never be like that. That's just not me. But I could always have a great attitude and do whatever people ask of me. And really, that's part of it. It's just, you know, have a great attitude and everything is, yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do that. You want me to play standing in my head? Oh, gee, I never tried that before. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> you know, one of those things. So it's just being 
willing to do whatever it takes and not be grumpy about it. Sure. That's the big thing. Okay. And believe me, I, I've gone through those stages myself where I've been very grumpy about things that I thought were not going the right way. And it didn't help me. <laughs> it's, it's not a good strategy, believe me. My experience is that I see con. I see contrasts and then I make some changes. So I feel like I'm being totally appropriate and then I meet somebody else who is much more easy to work with, uh, much more easy to get along with. Are they just, they're obviously willing to do anything that you ask them with a smile. And I realize, hey, I'm not doing that. I could make some steps to make myself a little bit more agreeable or a little bit more helpful. Uh, so, Bobby, I wanted to ask you about live streaming. You've written about this um, a little bit, especially recently about YouTube. Um, and I'm a big fan of live streaming events and concerts. I think every band should be live streaming their concerts so that people can watch them from anywhere in the world. And every business should be live streaming their corporate functions to include as many of theirs employees as possible, maybe at other locations or people who couldn't actually come to that event. It's just so easy to do now. And you wrote about YouTube just launching their own mobile streaming service. So why haven't my dreams come true yet? Why aren't artists and event producers streaming all of their events? Well, it's not as easy as you might think. First of all, there's a whole level of complexity that goes along with it besides the streaming part. For instance, you need a special mix just for the stream. So you have to have that set up. That's not always easy to do. You need, uh, you know, a, a balanced mix, especially for the broadcast. I mean, there are uh, mobile trucks that have made people a good amount of money, you know, just from doing that over the years. So that's a big impediment. The other impediment is, even though it seems like it should work, many times it doesn't. And mm -hmm. The best example is you asked me when we first started here to turn my camera off because you even were naked. though well even though we have, <laughs> I mean even though we have audio and the audio sounds pretty good you and I both know that it can turn into crap in no time that's true you can do streaming really well but to do it really well it does cost you money Oh, Bobby, I wanted to know, uh, you have many books on recording, you have a video series, uh, you have a blog, things like that. Is there any one of your books that you would recommend to live sound engineers, be it career or technical related, maybe even the one that you have on uh, social media? Uh, if you had to pick a couple, what would you recommend for live sound engineers? I guess the closest thing I have to that would be the Persona Studio Live official handbook. Ah, Okay. Yeah, took a and look at that. It looks good. Even though that's, you know, primarily, it's kind of an extended manual, but, you know, there's a lot on mixing live and a lot of monitors and, and acoustic environments and things like that. Uh, it's always a good thing to look at the mixing engineer's handbook, even if you're doing live sound, just to know how studio guys do it okay, and to understand where people are coming from. Well, Bobby, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Oh, it's easiest if you just go to bobbyosinski.com. Okay. And all of the, the links to blogs and podcasts and books and everything else, and my courses, all that stuff can be found through the site. Well, Bobby Osinski, thank you very much for coming on Sound Design Live.
My pleasure, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. Sound design. So two big announcements. Number one, I'm giving away a lifetime subscription to Sound Gym Pro. Sound Gym is practical audio ear training for sound engineers. And the reason that I like them so much is that I think they provide a service to teach a thing that I, I can't teach. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I teach in my course on sound system tuning is all about making things sound the same, right? From this place to this place and everywhere in the audience. But I can't really teach you how to make something sound good. That's something you kind of have to do on your own through ear training. So if you want to win a lifetime pro membership to Sound Gym, check out the giveaway in the show notes for this podcast. Announcement number two is I'm producing the very first Live Sound Summit. This is a two-day online training and networking event for live sound engineers in the pro audio community. And what I've tried to do here is basically bring together some of my favorite teachers all into one place so that you can learn from them from your living room or your office or your kitchen or wherever you are. So this is Robert Scoville, Bob McCarthy, Buford Jones, Jonathan Burton, Darren De La Soul, Nicholas Rudina, um, Michael Krieg, Thomas Neumann and Alice Stefancic teaching gorilla mixing, successful sound check, wireless frequency coordination, line array fundamentals, real world audio, and more. And that's all on June 10th and 11th. And if you want to get tickets, there's going to be a link in the show notes for this podcast. Um, there also are recordings available. So if you aren't available for the entire day on June 10th and 11th, Make sure you get the all-access pass. The two versions of the ticket, there's the general admission ticket, which is just gives you access to the entire live event. And then there's the all-access pass, which gives you access to the event, plus all of the recordings, all of the handouts, and any materials that are used during the event. Live Sound Summit, June 10th and 11th, and there'll be a link for tickets in the show notes. I'll see you there. I want to thank B1 for all of the great music in today's episode. You can find more of his music over at bandcamp.com. Just search for the letter B and the number one B1. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Bob, Megan, Dave, and Hsin Kwe, And you can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.